Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Hello, and welcome to another episode of I Weigh with Jamila Jamil, a podcast that aims to change people's minds. I hope you're all right, and if you're not, well, fuck me. No wonder you're not. Look at what's happening. It's just unfathomable. There are really no words, and especially depending on where you live in the world right now, I can't imagine how anxious you are. I don't think any of us are even able to comprehend the kind of chaos that we seem to be descending into so fast, just again and again and again, in region upon region upon region around the world. And I send you all of my love and I'm thinking about you all the time. And I urge you to get offline as much as you can, as much as is possible and safe for you, because our brains are just not built for this, for this much information about this many terrible things. Just try to preserve yourself and know that it's okay and you don't have to be a hero 24 hours a day. Sometimes you have to build back your strength. And speaking of the importance of being offline and the online world and how stressful it could be, today's guest talks to me in depth about just that. Her name is Ginger Gorman and she is an expert on online trolls. And I think a lot of people who listen to this podcast may have experienced trolling themselves and it may have happened to a loved one or maybe someone that you look up to, maybe a politician or a a public figure. And considering the subject matter of this podcast, I imagine you're the kind of people who feel fucking horrified when you see that kind of behavior and you see what it can push people to sometimes, people of any age, any background. And so Ginger wrote a book called Troll Hunting about her own journey into the world of trolls, into being trolled herself and then trying to understand what makes a troll become such like a hateful person. Like what are, what are their childhoods? What are the links? How do we, how do we prevent a society that breeds so much hatred and damage and desensitization? And her book, Troll Hunting, is a fascinating and she is fascinating and she came onto my podcast today to talk about that book to talk about her story and what she's learned and more hopefully how we could actually get out of this pattern that does seem to be getting worse especially in the last two years in which we've all been online I love how open she is I love how clear and passionate she is and I'm absolutely fascinated by her decision to befriend some of these terrifying trolls and the the closeness she developed with some of them and and her kind of insights into their humanity which I think a lot of us don't think about very often because we're so angry with them for behaving like such fucking creeps or bastards and it's so important to understand the cause and not the symptom otherwise we can never stop this from happening effectively. 
And so I hope you can listen to this with an open mind and understand that when Ginger and I, similarly to my episode with Natalie Wynn about incels, when we talk about the more empathetic angle regarding trolls, it's not because we are condoning them or uh, making any space for their behavior. We're just trying to understand in order to prevent more people like this cropping up in future generations. It's oddly quite a hopeful interview, but it's also just an interview that makes you feel so much less gaslit because this is the shit that most of us feel must be behind these anonymous accounts. These are the people, these are the experiences, these are the intentions. And she just breaks it down so clearly. And it's so fascinating that it's left me just kind of ringing for days since I spoke to her. I'd love to know what you think about it. Please message me and please follow Ginger's incredible work. Uh, You can find her online at Ginger Gorman, but she's also got her own podcast called Seriously Social. And she really is a proper expert in all of this stuff. Her origin story is mind-blowing. I do also just want to remind you that you can find transcripts for this episode on the Earwolf website. A lot of you have been asking me lately uh, how we get around that and and that has been the main way we found thus far to be able to bring you an accessible version of this podcast. Anyway, I can't wait to talk to you about this and I send you all of the love and strength in the world and I hope you look after yourselves and I hope you enjoy my chat with the excellent Ginger Gorman. Ginger Gorman, welcome to I Way. How are you? Good. It's so good to finally catch up with you. I know. We've been DMing for months. We have, haven't we? Are you feeling yeah. better as well? Because everyone in your family seemed to have COVID. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we're all good. I think the whole world got COVID and now it's nice to just have it over and done with. Um, yes. Yes, how, uh, how have you been? Good. No, really good. It's funny when you contacted me, Jamila, because I wrote my book, as you know, back in 2018. And I just didn't expect it to go so global and so viral. So I'd actually been saying no (laughs) to most media requests, but I couldn't resist you. Absolutely. And I I really want to get into the kind of spectrum of trolling to kind of figure out uh, all the different types of places that trolls come in, because some of us don't realise we're being trolls when we are. It's not always something that is deliberate because there are impacts and effects of our actions online that can lead to certain circumstances. But I think that was kind of why I approached you was my own kind of, one of the first things I said to you is that I used to be a troll and I, or at least I considered myself one, and I have grown up and uh, recognised that a lot of my poor treatment of other people online came from my own internal pain. And that has changed the way that I look at now other people's behavior towards me or towards other people. doesn't mean I condone it, but there's a difference between excusing and explaining something. Yes. And so uh, when I was talking a lot about this online, someone suggested that I look at your work and then I read your book and then I slid into your DMs and thankfully (laughs) you were very receptive. But it's just such a fascinating topic to me. And it's something that I got, I mean, the chances that you would write this before 2020, when trolling yes. would go on to become kind of an Olympic global sport. Yeah. was just ridiculous timing. 
So take me back to what made you enter into, because I mean, this is a fucking dangerous territory that you are chartering because you are, you are directly in contact with, you are exposing the kind of behaviors of and, and intentions of some of, some really dangerous people online whose danger doesn't only stay online. As yeah. you've kind of like hinted already, you know, um, That's talking right. about you um, know, the things that lead to mass shootings, etc. Um, can you talk to me about what led you to this? So, you know, Jimmy, I'm not a very techie person. I don't love the internet. I can't really even, you know, you just asked me to put my phone on silent. I, I struggle with that stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm not, Same. I'm, I'm interested <laughs> in humans. <laughs> Um, you know, my ex-husband used to say, uh, I can't even scroll on my phone. How do you not know how to use this stuff? So it's not like I was obsessed with the internet or anything. What happened was I used to work for Australia's national public broadcaster, the ABC, no connection to the American ABC. And I've always been a human rights journalist, or I call myself a social justice journalist. So I did this series of stories while I was working for the national broadcaster on people in the LGBTIQ plus community and their human rights. And these were not, you know, CNN hard hitting kind of stories. These were features about their lives. And one of these couples was a gay couple, Mark Newton and Peter Truong. And I met them and I met their little boy and they told me that they had had their little boy via surrogacy in Russia. And so I did this story. It went on the radio and it was posted online. And that was in 2010. And then a few years later, I moved back to Canberra, which is the capital of Australia where I was from. And I went about my life. I was on maternity leave with my second baby. And these two men, one of them, um, Mark Newton, was an American citizen. They had been arrested in Indianapolis for horrific pedophilic crimes against this boy. And it turned out that he hadn't been born via surrogacy. He had been purchased from his Russian mother for 8,000 US dollars. And from the time he was two weeks old, he was horrifically sexually abused by these men. And he had been shared with pedophiles all over the globe. And that's the reason that they were traveling in the United States. And in fact, international police had been trying to pin them down for a few years at that stage. But so what happened then was, you know, so your so old article of, resurfaced. Yeah. So start of 2013, you know, it's like hot or maybe it was the middle of the year by that stage. So boiling hot, I'm there with this new baby. And then I start just getting torrents and torrents of cyber hate, like unbelievable. And, you know, I mean. Because they were angry that you'd platformed, right? They were angry you'd platformed. Yeah. So the accusations were that. I was somehow responsible for the crimes against this little boy, that I was morally morally culpable and that I should pay. And it was all being instigated by this US journalist, very right-wing conservative journalist, Robert Stacey McCain. And he was really inciting his followers to shame me and they bloody well did. Like they really went hell for leather. And so... At that stage, like 2013, in the States, trolling was much more common and this extreme predator trolling was happening. But in Australia, it really hadn't hit like that. We didn't really know what that was. So, you know, I mean, I'm of a Jewish background and my then husband found this photo of our family on a fascist website with quite threatening stuff underneath. And, you know, it included 
a picture of me with my two-year-old pregnant with my second child. And then we also got a death threat at the same time. Mm. So, you know, I said I wasn't techie. So my tweets were geolocated. So you could actually look at this death threat. And if you looked on Twitter below my tweets, you could see where our house was on Google Maps. And it's so at that point, that that I was something just that like, they even allow on social media. My God. Yeah. Like, it, but we didn't know back then, like the national yeah. broadcaster kind of insisted I had to be online for my work and I had to have a profile and so forth. I was a radio announcer, you know, so it was part of my job actually. Mm. And I rang the police here and they said what they always say to victims all around the world, which is just stay off the internet, love. And I was like, what? And I remember ringing my boss and he said, do you want to see someone at the employee assistance scheme? Like, do you want to see a psychologist? And I was like, no, you fucking moron. This is what I was thinking. I need to know, is someone going to kill my kids? You know, like I was lying in bed in a cold sweat, listening to my two little tiny babies in the next room asleep and breathing and thinking that someone was going to kill them or all of us. And so that's really where it started. Like I, you know, was so, so afraid. And luckily for me, because I know what can happen now, I know that you can be killed as a result of this stuff. Nothing did happen. It They were empty threats. But I guess like 18, within about 18 months, my fear died down. And then I was like, who are these guys? You know, mm. and I was watching people like yourself, like women, journalists all around the world, largely in the States and the UK, but like a lot of females online really, really copying this stuff, like de- rape threats, death threats, beheaded women in their inboxes. And I was thinking like, what is going on, you know? So then I went out to find these guys. Like I wanted to know why they were doing that. Who are they? But, you know, Jamila, like I didn't understand. I didn't know how dangerous these guys were really. Like I didn't, I mean, when I think about it now, I was so naive. Like I went to meet Mark, one of the trolls in my book, that's a pseudonym. And he's such a psychopath. Like he really is responsible for- And you're not using that term, you're not using that term like sort of, Loosely, you mean he's actually, he's mm. what? I mean, yes, psychopathy like Mark, has been debated um, as an actual like term, I know, but like you're saying, no, that he, he um, he fits the dictionary definition of a psychopath. Like he has right. no empathy. He uh, has cognitive empathy, so he can understand how to upset you, but he doesn't have effective empathy. So oh, that's he fascinating. Wants- I've never heard of that before. So cognitive yeah, so empathy this is, is research- understanding how to push someone's buttons without yeah. then feeling like a uh, any kind of responsibility for remorse, it afterwards yeah. or remorse, yeah. Yeah, so he, and, and this is a funny thing, like there's a kind of idea that these guys are dumb idiots in their mum's basements, not at all. Like most of the guys I got embedded with, highly, highly intelligent and therefore very terrifying. So Mark uh, really fitted this research that came out of Federation University in Australia and the research shows that trolls, especially severe trolls, have cognitive empathy so they can understand how to hurt you and they take pleasure from that, but they don't feel effective empathy. So they don't feel for you. They have no remorse or concern that they're going to hurt you and that's really dangerous. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I just went to meet Mark literally like in a cafe with my tape recorder. In person? Yeah, and I didn't understand like this person could get me killed. I didn't even tell my husband at the time, you know, like where I was going. I just oh trotted God, along Ginger. there. And then, you know, Stressful I mean, this is hard. 
I know, like retrospectively, right, because we know what we know now. We know that these guys are related to terrorist attacks. We know that they are high school Mm -hmm. shooters. We know that they are the likes of the Christchurch killer. But back then nobody knew. And so, like, I remember just sitting there and then, you know, a few minutes into the interview thinking, holy hell, Mm -hmm. like I am actually in physical danger now and you know my relationship what was with it Mark, what was it and what was it that kind of triggered that that realization well he was talking about inciting people to suicide and he was talking about some of the swats that he had been involved in so this is where you kind of prank armed police so the 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 sections of the police that have massive machine guns and you prank them and you say there's a hostage situation or something happening at someone's house and then the armed police come and kick people's doors down in the middle of the night and you know they shoot people's dogs and stuff and they often you know they might accidentally even shoot somebody and you see this in the gaming community all the time but this is a really common predator trolling tactic and he had been very involved in this Uh, so it was that but also I could just see he had no human empathy The thing that protected me, because people, you know, lots of people have criticised me for the way that I made these relationships with these guys and I stayed embedded with them. The thing that protected me and the reason I'm alive, not dead, (laughs) is because they ended up trusting me. And so this is a really complicated part of the story. Like these guys are mainly young white men between the ages of 18 and 35. And it's very hard to wrap your head around this as a left-wing feminist, right? Like me, but they feel marginalized. These are your classic kind of angry, disaffected Trump supporters. We have the equivalent in Australia. Um, Kind of shorthand would be like white trash, but I came to understand they actually are marginalised, most of these guys, which is hard to wrap your head around coming from where I was coming from. But, you know, like another one of the guys that I actually became very good friends with, which sounds strange, um, Mape Sheep, his upbringing was unbelievable. Like Mm -hmm. he came from a really violent, neglected household. His mum was an alcoholic. She beat the crap out of him. When he would go stay with his dad that was separated, he would starve him. Like, you can't be amazed if you've got these kids that are completely unparented, you know, like abandoned basically by their parents and by the community. And then like they're on the internet, on the cesspits of the internet, imbibing this stuff and they get radicalised into trolling. 100%. I mean, you've you've said before, like, I think that this was... This has kind of come from that. There's so many fascinating things about your interactions with trolls. I mean, first of all, the fact that you could ask them anything and they were never phased, didn't matter how personal your questions were, <laughs> because that is the nature of the way that yeah. they conduct themselves. It's like there is yes. nothing is off limits in behavior. Yeah. So therefore they can't, they don't actually expect that to be, you know, um, given no. back to them either. They don't have any boundaries. Um, and so you were able to like really kind of like penetrate their exact mentality, their exact intentions and their exact life stories and and it was through doing that that you realized that they were saying you know people assume because you know we're men or we're straight or we're cis or whatever I mean a a lot of them maybe are white I have no idea about the kind of 
ethnicity of trolls. I'm sure it depends on maybe where in the world you are. But they are people who often many people will look at as like, well, you know, you're not as marginalised as everyone else. So therefore, you know, you don't have something systemic up against you, but it doesn't mean that these people didn't slip through the cracks. Now, that's something that I love about your work because it's something that I try as delicately as I can to talk (laughs) about. You know, we had an episode um, like with the brilliant Natalie Wynn on here about incels where we talk about like the mental health that kind of leads to or the low self-esteem that leads to someone being radicalised in that way. And so I think it's fucking vital that we have this conversation because if we don't understand the cause, we'll never understand the fucking symptoms. Right. And these guys, so Meep Sheep, the guy that I'm still friends with. He was messaging me yesterday. You know, um, I know it's it's mad, right? It is, I understand it's very hard for people to accept. And some of my journalistic colleagues have gotten very angry with me about these relationships. But the thing is, so he's a tiny little kid. He's completely left alone, starved, abused. You know, his dad at one point left him with no food in the house for 10 days. He was a pilot and he just left him. Um, and he's on the internet imbibing this stuff and the internet's parenting him. And he's imbibing misogyny, you know, he's imbibing racism and he's mm-hmm. radicalised into trolling. And he said to me, you think you found a community of people who are as angry at the world as you are and you set out to get the world back with them. And that is so powerful, right? That's what everybody wants. They want a sense of belonging. And, you know, and I it's get it's a community, it. isn't it, for like it's these a community and suffering people? You know, I mean, it's hard to understand for them, the outside. And it took me a long time, but they speak in a different way. As you've suggested, they have their own morality. And Meep Sheep was almost like my guide through that world. He answered thousands and thousands of questions on and on and on and on day and night for like, you know, a year I would be asking, who's this person? What does this mean? Why is this person swapping syndicates? You know, they all are in these huge international syndicates. And so, you know. What do you mean by that? Can you explain to the audience? Oh, of course. So, I mean, I didn't understand this either, that most of these guys, with the exception of one guy that I wrote about, they're all in some kind of syndicate or some kind of group. So the best way to understand this is like what we call outlaw motorcycle gangs in Australia. You have these kind of motorcycle gangs in the States too, where you have a president and a vice president and there's quite strong moral codes in those groups and quite strong rules. And then they do things together. So they go on a raid together or they might join syndicates and go on a raid. So when someone is being attacked and there are floods and floods of, uh, messages and there's floods of cyber hate against them and they're being doxxed and their personal details are put online and so forth. It's not just like one angry person doing that. That's usually an organised activity. And so that was really interesting for me as well. But, you know, it's taken a long time for law enforcement around the globe to get a handle on this. So I gave evidence here in Australia at our Senate hearings into cyberbullying in 2018 And I had already finished the manuscript to the book pretty much. And like, I remember saying at this Senate hearing, these groups are linked to terrorist attacks. These groups are linked to hate crimes. These groups are linked to real life assaults, to domestic abuse. And the senators were just looking at me like, this woman is out of her freaking mind. Oh yeah, she's hysterical. 
Yeah, she's just like, mm-hmm. what the hell is she talking about? And the Senate report came down and it had most of my comments in it, but it didn't have that in it because they obviously thought that that was insane. And then, you know, right after my book happened, the Christchurch massacre happened in New Zealand. And then the narrative completely changed. And that was devastating for me because like I was trying to stop something like that happening. I could see it all happening online. I could see the high school shootings and stuff happening. And I was like, this is going to get ugly you know, and and now no one's, no one's questioning it, unfortunately, but I just, it makes me so angry and it's racist, you know, because if these were brown guys Mm -hmm. mobilizing online like this, if these were Muslims, this is not the conversation you would have had. There would be no dismissing it. Oh, it's mate, because I'm, these are I'm white Pakistani. Guys. I'm too scared to even say backpack in text message. Like, <laughs> trust yeah, me, I know. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. So, I mean, I just was so angry when Christchurch happened because I was like, if these were brown guys, you know, the cops always come out and say, so my, my book starts with this high school shooting in New Mexico and that happened like live kind of as I was writing in the manuscript. And the guy, William Atchison, that did that shooting had been saying online forever that he wanted to copy Columbine. And he was one of Mark's administrators. So Mark sent me a whole file on him. Mark sent me absolutely everything about this kid, everything he'd ever said about wanting to do a shooting, all his GPS calls. What do you mean everything. by one of his administrators? So they have a website where they file all the raids and everything they do. So all of the information that they like to collect about their history and all the things they've done and all the people they've targeted, it's all like documented. It's like a burn book. Yeah, but but anyone can find it. This is the thing. And so the cops, like after that high school shooting in New Mexico and even after Christchurch, they kind of say, oh, we had no idea. And I'm like, how the fuck did you have no idea? Because it is everywhere. It is all over these chat rooms and it's really accessible for anyone to see. Like the Christchurch killer, he was saying everything he was going to do quite a while before he did it. So it's just incredible. And I just feel like, no, you're not looking in the right places because these guys are white. And actually, factually, white terrorists kill far more people than brown terrorists around the globe. Like white supremacists. Would you say the vast majority of online trolls are white men? Look, I wouldn't say that because I'm just looking at this one cohort. And since my book came out, I've been made aware, like academics in Sri Lanka have contacted me. Trolling is huge there in India. Yeah, in India, like, um, you know, lots of Kashmiri folk have contacted me. There's massive predator trolling against people there. Lots of Indian women in particular, journalists who are outspoken You know, there's a woman in my book, a female Indian journalist who got killed and there's another Mm -hmm. one who I was really worried would get killed as a result of predator trolling. So, no, I mean, I was looking in these communities. That's why I asked because the reason that I've stopped talking about what's happening in Kashmir between Pakistan and India and Kashmir is because of the amount of death and rape threats I get every time. And then when everything was kind of like flaring up again with Israel and Palestine, I put out a statement saying that I was like, please stop pressuring me to talk about this when I speak about global like, you know, any kind of war or any kind of um, any kind of global situation that is is violent. If I speak about it, uh, I receive a terrifying amount of violence, violence that someone with 200 followers or 2000 followers couldn't even 
you couldn't you couldn't even imagine some like the amount the tidal wave of death threats that women specifically especially if you are brown get in the public eye I then ended up speaking about it and doing you know whatever I thought was best but um but that's why I was asking you because I feel as though I obviously get trolled a lot by the alt-right but a, a shit ton of what I get online is from men who look like me yeah so I'm so sorry that that happens to you I mean and I wish I could say I was the part prize Jamila but you know I've been in this game a long time now and I know that this is what happens like if you're a woman and you want to use your voice Mm -hmm. the patriarchy wants to silence you and uh, it doesn't matter whether you are white or whether you are brown This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now listen, we all carry around different stresses, big, small, medium size, and a lot of us keep them bottled up because sometimes we just have to. But doing that all of the time can really, really start to negatively impact your life. And I say that from experience. I'm British. We are told to never say how we're feeling about anything ever. And uh, that's why so many of us are so sad. Now, a way that I was able to remedy that was by having therapy, which was super helpful for me, not only because it's amazing to get things off your chest, but also all week, you know, as you're bottling things up, because it's not always the time or place to say exactly how you feel, you know you're going to get that hour where you're able to get everything off your chest and say it exactly as you want to. And this therapist isn't going to take it personally and they're not going to hold it against you or throw it back in your face during an argument over dinner next week. You just have this complete freedom. Honestly, I think everyone should have therapy, regardless of whether they think they need it, because it's so amazing to have a confidant. It's a journal that talks back to you and helps you with all of your problems. I think therapy is just a safe space to get everything off your chest to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, then maybe you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be super convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and then you can switch therapists if you don't like them anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash iWay today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iWay. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well... Oh yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. The thing is, if I can just zoom out a little bit and say, this particular issue made me question one of my really deep values as someone who considers themselves progressive because I always thought everyone deserves a voice, right? (laughs) But that's so naive. Does Mark, who gets people killed, does he deserve a voice? 
No, he doesn't. So this is a really interesting thing about the naivety with which platforms like Twitter and Facebook have been set up. You know, like when I was trying to get interviews from Facebook and Twitter, which is a whole chapter of my book, like they claim to be all pro-free speech but then won't actually answer any questions. Um, They say this naive stuff like we're here for everyone to have a voice. You know, what a load of shit. Like, you know, as we saw with Francis Hagen's Senate testimony, you are not there for everyone to have a voice. The primary motive of all these giant platforms is profit and therefore they will turn a blind eye or even make it easier for extremism to flourish on their platform. You know, they target children with ads promoting anorexia and so forth because they want the money. Mm. And the fact of the matter is, like, if, say, someone's piling onto you or let's say you say something about Kashmir in India and you've got thousands of people piling onto you with cyber hate, guess what? That makes them a ton of money because of the advertising So it's absolutely deluded. You know, this um, report came out from the Pew Centre, I think, maybe it was 2018, and 1,500 and something international experts on IT were canvassed. And over and over and over again, they were saying, the motive is profit, the motive is profit. So therefore, these companies need to be reined in. This is absolutely like what Teddy Roosevelt did in the 1800s with big oil and big gas. They were damaging the community and therefore those companies were legislated against. These big companies need to be broken up and they must be forced to have a public duty of care because they're not going to do it on their own. They're not. We can see it. We can see the unmitigated damage that they are doing. I mean, imagine how much like during the kind of like tremendous rise of trolling and political divide worldwide, we're seeing like a rise of fascism. We're seeing, I mean, so much division everywhere um, and such vile behavior. I mean, people push to suicide, young people push to suicide in increasing numbers by online trolling. Um, I imagine social media platforms made a fucking killing. We were all yeah, at home. Absolutely. And they're online. still doing it. And really, like, the only time I've seen it, and, you know, like, I think it's important that there is um, a crackdown on COVID misinformation, of course. But this is the first time I've ever seen them kind of take really aggressive action is when someone puts down, like, puts public misinformation, COVID misinformation out. And while I'm, I'm glad that that's happening, I also have to say I'm a little bit pissed because now we know they can fucking act really fast and they can flag things and they can monitor things. Of and course they, they can. have chosen to neglect women and children's the the violence that we receive online and the and the fucking the the trans people that I've seen have like people in their DMs saying they're gonna behead them, etc. They could have done something about this all along and have chosen have chosen not to. Because absolutely, because now, because now, you know, like that, there is also like a, there is a profit, and this is not me being in remotely like um, against the fact that they're like you know monitoring vaccine information, but there is profit from big pharma, you know. So if they shut down any kind of 
uh, vaccine misinformation. That's that's also part, not just because they're just great people who want us to all get out of the pandemic faster, because the pandemic's actually serving them really well financially. It's also partially because there's someone potentially in their pocket who's paying them for advertising. A hundred percent. And, you know, I mean, I had someone in my family who I love desperately and she was unvaccinated and she died the most horrific death because of COVID. So sorry to hear that. And it's because of misinformation on Facebook. And the thing is, like, we shouldn't be so naive about this. Like, they've had since 2006 they've been bleating about fixing this and they haven't. I mean, if they can target me when I put on two pounds and give me weight loss advertising, Mm -hmm. you know, they can fix cyber hate. They're not because they don't want to. Like, they have user bases bigger than China and India put together. They are nation states with unmitigated power. They pay no corporate tax and they have the best engineers in the world working for them. They could bloody well fix it. But they don't. Do you think how what? Okay, this is a fucking stupid question, but <laughs> fuck it. Um, how what percentage do you think? As you studied this for so long, of the of of social media use is just for trolling. The reason I'm asking that is that because there there must be an engagement they are terrified of losing, and so therefore that must be quite yes. a significant amount of engagement. Yeah. The terrified. I don't of know losing. the answer to that because they won't give I you almost, any data. Right. I almost you know well, all, I, I almost exclusively now just see negativity online directed at other yes. people. You know, and I mean. There is a problem with cancel culture, which you were talking about, where you almost can't say anything, and that is a silencing almost within the left, but it is exacerbated by that environment. Like it's almost like a culture, right? But mm-hmm. the thing that one of the things I was saying in the Senate hearings is like, you know, what is the data? And they won't give you the data. They wouldn't answer any questions about their data and how much money do they put towards solving cyber hate? How do they triage cyber hate claims? All that stuff. They won't. There is legislation coming in in Australia uh, or it's just come in. It came in on January the 23rd, trying to make those companies report to our e-safety commissioner. We have a federal e-safety commissioner and we're the first country in the world to do that. I know that Britain is also bringing in really interesting legislation to try to force them to have a duty of care. But at the moment, I mean, it's actually quite amazing if you think about it. This is like a, a big corporate car company or something, putting cars on the road without seatbelts that they know will kill people Mm. and there's no recourse, there's no accountability, the government doesn't crack down. Like, why? It is fascinating to hear you describe it as a nation state. It is almost like it's its own planet. It's this, like, separate civilization where we behave separately to the way that we behave within face-to-face civilization. Like, everything about it, it's kind of like it's our tethers, you know what I mean? Yes. It's like our worst, <laughs> our worst, shittiest, angriest selves, but, our most like uncivilized selves uh, interacting with strangers, sometimes from anonymous accounts. Yeah. I mean, I also don't want to say it's the government. The government needs to fix it. Like it's all of us, right? All yeah. of us could behave better online. Mm-hmm. But it is problematic when you have companies that are so large and so powerful that they don't feel that they need to be accountable 
to governments. Like I've watched Mark Zuckerberg not answer a single question. Oh, yeah, he word salads his way through those. But um, how can you have someone who thinks they are beyond government that thinks they don't need to answer? And it was the same with the Senate hearings here. Like the Facebook and Twitter and representatives of those companies, they didn't answer a single question. So how can we elect a democratic government, right, and these companies think that they are beyond the law, they are unanswerable to them? That's, that's a problem. That's a problem if you think you're beyond the law and beyond democracy. And and just back to like the mentality of the trolls, just because I really want to make sure that I kind of get into this with you. Yes. The, the way that they brag openly online about what they do. I said burn book earlier. I meant brag book. Like the way that they like document um, all of their behaviours, their, you know, whatever, their quote unquote like wins, you know, when they have successfully trolled or been a part of something like incredibly destructive. Um, the way that they answer all of your questions and let you fully into the whole like web of darkness like are these people who also like is there a narcissism to it as well where they're like they want to be found out they want to be known they want because you know you talk a lot in the book and like also just like I've you know been watching your talks and stuff yeah you talk about the fact that actually sometimes the best response to a troll is just no response at all, which is incredibly yeah, frustrating I've, to do. I mean, I've changed my mind a little bit about that. Right. But in terms of, so it's really complicated in terms of their psychology. We've talked a little, little bit about empathy, but there was a really interesting paper called Trolls Just Want to Have Fun that came out of the University of British Columbia and the University of Manitoba. And that paper found that trolling is strongly correlated with what they call the dark tetrad of personality traits. So it's psychopathy, Machiavellianism, narcissism, and sadism. Mm -hmm. But sadism is the strongest link, okay? So that's the strongest correlation. And define sadism. Yeah, so what that means is that they enjoy harming you. They take Mm -hmm. pleasure from winding you up. Okay, so I would say a lot of us have a tiny bit of sadism in us, but this is extreme. Mm-hmm. So in terms of why are they boasting about it, why are they doing the behaviour is sadism, why are they boasting about it is a bit of both. It's a bit of narcissism and narcissism and some of the other traits. But one of the most interesting things, because I did have this question, like why the hell are these guys all talking to me? right? Like if it was a dating app, I am their hate match. I am left-wing. I am a journalist. They hate left-wing people. They hate journalists. They hate Jews. At that time I was in a mixed race marriage. They hate that. Like I was also all a the woman. Fucking things. So therefore, yeah, I'm know. a woman. Like I'm, I'm just everything. So right. it was really hard for me to understand like, why are they talking to me? First of all, they feel unheard. Second of all, they are proud of what they've done, like you're suggesting. There is a level of narcissism and they want people to know about it. And third, like they're in a culture. It's hard to understand this from the outside, but they have a history and a law, L-O-R-E, and they wanted that written down. They Mm. wanted to contribute. You know, a couple of them said to me, I want to make sure trolling history is documented. I know it sounds bonkers, but to them it was just like, you know, as if they were part of a really interesting new movement. They wanted it written down. And the other thing is not all of it was sadist. So some of it was designed to make political points, for example. 
And this is why I think trolling is really interesting. It's not always damaging. There is actually a place for it socially. So um, Meep Sheep was, uh, he was president of a trolling syndicate, which I'm going to name now and it's pretty offensive, so just hold your breath. The Gay N-Word Association of America, right, is the GNNA. And they called it that deliberately as an offensive prank on the media because what they do is they prank the media all the time and it gets loads of coverage on really, really right-wing channels and so forth and some other platforms as well. And then we are forced as journalists to write that down every time they do one of these pranks. And they would do these incredibly sophisticated pranks often to show us how biased we were. So one of them, I'll give you an example, which I find fascinating because this is not about hurting an individual. This is about showing the media that they are left-wing and biased. So in mm. during Hurricane Sandy, the GNNA made up that black people were looting. They completely fabricated it. And they made up all these Twitter handles of black people and they were posting these ridiculous tweets to see if they could play into the media's racial bias and show up that A, the media doesn't fact check and B, they're willing to believe anything, anything negative about black people. And it worked. You know, all of these platforms reported this as if it was a story. And then they put out a statement saying, look, you guys in the media are so left-wing, you think you're all enlightened, but look how racist you are. Look how biased you are. Look at the fact that you don't fact-check. It's really clever. But did the, uh, did the media then come back and, like, then apologise for what they said and own up to having made that mistake? Not as far just, as I know. One that of the is platforms, wild, isn't it? Yeah, so, but, <laughs> but, I mean, that's a really interesting social commentary. Mm-hmm. So this is where I'm saying that these guys are not usually dumb. These guys are actually often quite self-educated, very, very bright. Like Meep Sheep, who I became friends with, he, when I met him, was very misogynist, but he had read all the feminist texts. You know, he could go into combat with me, like intellectual combat, hard. He's not a misogynist anymore, interestingly, because like after I'd been embedded with him for a long time, he just realised that women could be kind you know, and the women could listen and actually we were human beings. So that's an interesting thing too. Like what happens when you're just a human being, when you show radical empathy and you just listen? The fucking problem with online is that you can't like, (laughs) you can't tangibly um, connect to someone else's humanity. So they are just kind of like avatars to each other, everyone. And I think, you know, I imagine like the kind of the rise of filters and Photoshop and all these things makes everyone seem even more like a kind of dehumanized doll. Do you know what I mean? This perfect montage of our lives that we put out, like that further dehumanizes us. Like we're kind of accidentally dehumanizing ourselves, which is not, (laughs) does not excuse any of this fucking behavior. But I'm just saying, I'm just trying to under, I'm trying to understand it. Um, And I think what I wonder is, is that if some of these people, I don't think a lot of them are necessarily that smart. Maybe the ones who are in these kind of you know, intelligent, kind of, I don't know, targeted, trying to make a social point. But a lot of these people are not very bright and they say really like abhorrent, ignorant, stupid things. But what I will say is that I wonder if they feel neglected in the world for some reason. Maybe it's, Completely. you know, maybe, maybe there are, like, I, I think it's fair to say that there's some sort of like, I don't know, Venn diagram with incels and trolls and like somewhere in the middle where they all kind of meet. And these are people who feel like ignored, like they'll never be noticed, who now have found a way 
to be noticed. Yeah, I mean, these are not separate groups necessarily. Like we like to label them as incels or this or that, you know, but they have, they very much cross, cross over, yeah. you know. Um, and I think it is about power when it comes down to it. Like it's about folks that feel disenfranchised in some way and they're trying to change that. Like it's almost like before you had the internet, there was a pressure cooker of disenfranchised folks who had nowhere to put that anger and suddenly they've all got a voice and not only have they got a voice but they can connect very fast to each other and spread those ideas very fast like we've just seen with the anti-vax movement you know and I mean there's a question there there's a question there which is like maybe this is a bit chicken or egg but you know there's there's a part of us that feels like the internet has further dehumanized us and obviously there's the blue light that comes from our phones that we stop producing whatever chemicals enable our empathy when we're looking into that blue lines in our phone which like further desensitizes us uh, and stops us from being empathetic so it's a bit like when Donald Trump you know, came up in America and suddenly it felt like racism took a kind of like 150% and bigotry in general yeah. and misogyny all took like kind of 150% surge. The question I think a lot of us had was, is he causing this or has he unleashed what was already there? And I sometimes like can't figure this out about online. Yeah, and like, so- <laughs> and like, has it made us worse or are, were so many people like this disgraceful and now we kind of finally have access to being able to put that all out there is this is this our human nature our sort of like uncivilized human nature at play when we're not living by societal norms so I think we need to hold a lot in our heads at the same time when we talk about this the internet did not create misogyny or hatred that existed in society a long Mm -hmm. time before the internet and we saw that like there are so many examples, like the Rwandan genocide, you know, well, you know, Hitler gassing six million Jews. You can go on and on and on, right? So, But I'm talking about mis- the sharp rise, that's all. Yeah, so the, the thing that the internet has done is it is a tool. And as I briefly talk about in my book, some tools insist on being used in certain ways. There are aspects mm-hmm. of the tool that make a behaviour or a thought that already exists come to the fore, So what the internet has done, it didn't create the hatred. The hatred and all of those isms already existed in society. You know, ableism, misogyny, racism, like that was all there. But when you create a tool that connects every person on earth and anyone can have a voice and you can proliferate an idea at the speed of light and connect people together very, very fast, you have a tool that's insisting on being used in a certain way. So you're reaching far more people and you would have had people, we've seen this um, in Canberra really recently with the so-called Convoy to Canberra where we had anti-vaxxers coming from all over the country to kind of converge on Parliament House, right? All these disaffected people, they might not have known why they were angry. They might have been just felt pissed you know, and in the old days before the internet, they would have been doing that in their individual communities and houses, and they might not have known where to find other people like them. They can find other people like them in a second who are reinforcing these ideas, giving them new ideas, 
and therefore they get ground swells. So it's like pouring gasoline on a fire that's already there, basically. Absolutely. Because because pre-internet, maybe if we had problematic views or thoughts or feelings, if the only people we have access to are the people right around us and they don't share those values, let's say at school or at work or whatever, or in our household, then we're more likely to question those values and maybe not speak about them and maybe even change. But if you then put people directly into immediate contact with people who reinforce and, and maybe sometimes go further to like indoctrinate others into that value system, then they are no longer, there's a, a benefit to social pressure, you know, and then they no longer are subjected to that. Absolutely. And this is the first time in history that instead of getting uh, social norms and morals just from our families and our immediate communities, we can get them anywhere. And we can get them anywhere we go online, you know? So that is a problem. And so it's not that the internet created these issues. It's just that the tool gives us the ability to proliferate this very fast. I think if you look at the work of the Southern Poverty Law Centre in Alabama, you know, they've been tracking hate for a long time and they do these incredible quarterly intelligence reports. And it's slightly terrifying to see how fast this stuff is proliferating. But do we blame the internet? No. But do we need to reclaim the internet for the good of humanity? Yes, we do. And so this is a kind of question for governments, really, and and for us. Like, how do we do this so that we can use it for wonderful things? We can use it to share knowledge. We can use it for its original purpose. Although I have to say, like, I do need it to question, like, individuals and systems though you know like there's also yeah absolutely it's a really tricky blurry line because there's you know liberals or the left or whatever like you know there's a a necessity to like the black lives matter movement the me too movement even like the i way movement like and so this involves tearing down systems and that involves kind of you know like like targeted um efforts however then when it kind of when there are people on the opposition who in their heads feel as though there's a rise of I don't know a different kind of like fascism on the left or they you know they feel as though they are fighting um something valid we're all of a sudden like no 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 no. but what you're doing is wrong and trolling like in an ideal world social media would go back to being, you know, we wouldn't need it to be anything more than just showing each other our avocado avocado toast. But there is (laughs) massive, like, benefits to, you know, I think what happened with, I think Biden being able to beat Trump was a response, was was a uh, result of online mobilising of activists. Yeah, and I mean, you need to be really clear that this is a really important place for vulnerable groups to meet and discuss and to make change. But they should be allowed to be safe. Absolutely. Like I'm the editor of a feminist website and we publish a lot of research and a lot of stories that are not being told anywhere else. And that is crucially important. It's crucially important to be able to connect with other people. And, you know, there's sometimes an argument, oh, we just get rid of anonymity. And that is so, so simplistic because there's lots of groups like... If you're a Rohingya Muslim fleeing um, Myanmar and your life is at stake, you need to be anonymous online. You know, there's lots of reasons why people need to be anonymous online and that need to be able to meet and talk online. But it's just a matter of uh, protecting conversation and also being um, 
having the ability to disagree. I think there's disagree politely, you know. They don't tell someone to kill themselves. No, you don't. I mean, there's a difference between saying, Ginger, I hate what you've written for these reasons. You're wrong. Why do you need to say to me, I'm going to kill your kids and cut your uterus out? Like, why do you need to say that? So, and this is a thing as well, like back to social norms, like you wouldn't say that to me if you met me in the grocery store, if you met me in the supermarket. So don't say it to me online. And I mean, I guess this comes back to education as well. So there's kind of lots of things, you know, we, we do need to legislate to make the internet safer. We Law enforcement needs to understand this better and be resourced and have the tools to investigate these crimes. But also we badly need to ha- introduce and stick by online etiquette and teach it to our kids and teach them online resilience skills because otherwise this is just going to go on and on forever. And I mean, personally, I can't live without the internet. You know, the internet was just recognised by the United Nations as a human right, like having access. So it's ludicrous to say to people, stay off the internet. Like economically, socially, politically, we need it. It's a crucial tool. But why have we let it... Um, devolve into this dangerous cesspit we can rescue it but we need to act so okay so we have educating kids in school I think also something you've touched on early on in this episode is the need to also understand that these are people who are slipping through the cracks yeah and again that's something that maybe we need to approach younger like you know and I get I get piled onto whenever I suggest that there is a mental health element to this because I think people feel as though I'm stigmatizing mentally ill people I'm definitely not I'm not saying that all mentally ill people behave in this certain way but what I am saying is that things like depression things like anxiety things like um I don't know um severe narcissistic disorders you know and and borderline disorders, these are all things like trauma, PTSD. Some of these people, you know, you've touched upon someone who has severe PTSD has gone on to then become an online troll. We have to be able to have this conversation. We cannot become so precious around the mental health conversation. I say this as a hugely mentally ill person myself, uh, that I don't want us to become so precious about the conversation of mental health that we therefore don't even recognise when it's part of something that needs to be resolved because we can't talk about it like we can't get to that place of fragility because we will end up allowing this kind of cesspit to grow and this is not stigmatization in any way I don't do these things I have PTSD I don't go and treat people like where where I'm going to like tell them that I'm going to kill their kids or like cut their fucking body parts out my god I'm so sorry that was said to you um but but I still recognize that there are still people in pain who need help. And maybe if we were to help them, they would go on to. And like, if you go back to that chapter I was talking about, which is probably the one that hit me the most. And that was so hard for me to deal with. And I really had to sit with it for a long time. That chapter, the internet was my parent. These are little boys. These are 10 to 16 year old boys that are completely abandoned by society and by their families that are getting on the internet and getting radicalized into these behaviors and at 18 or so getting spat out as the Christchurch killer. Like we have a responsibility to these kids to step in there. That is a crucial intervention point for those boys to grow up in a healthy way, but also so they don't end up walking into a mosque in New Zealand and shooting more than 50 people dead. 
Mm-hmm. So there absolutely is a responsibility there. Or or even on a lesser on a lesser scale, like sending terrifying death threats that maybe they don't even intend on following up on to marginalized yeah. people, to women. Like because that can impact it's impacted my mental health being on the receiving end of very, very violent like descriptions of how I'm gonna be sexually assaulted, etc., like from strangers online. Like, and they might never fo- follow through on that. But it doesn't change the way that then that makes me feel in my home, you know? Absolutely. And so that's you on an individualistic level, right? That's just you. But if you Mm -hmm. think about, if I think about everybody that's silenced, all those marginalised voices that no longer speak and that then young white, white supremacist men have the floor that is fucking terrifying. Terrifying. Like, do you want to live in a society where they are the people that have the voice, where they are the people that speak and nobody else? I don't. I want to live in a pluralistic society where I hear all these different voices. So it's one thing on an individual level and the damage that it does to you. And I mean, this book, by the end of this book, I had really bad PTSD. I had to get treatment for it. I was very alcoholic, you know, because... People were all being murdered in real time. Like it is a violent cesspit, you know. Um, I understand the damage it does to us on an individual level, but I am more terrified, like as someone that has spent my career fighting for a more equitable and just society, I am so scared about what this is doing on a macro level Mm -hmm. (laughs) across the globe to everybody that needs a voice, to everybody that needs to talk. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Thank you so much for your work. Um, I strongly suggest that everyone goes out and and read your book, Troll Hunting, and follows you online and, and reads your writing because I think it's unbelievably valuable and just so helpful to kind of humanise the situation and also like talk about what an emergency this is and like you are raising really important alarms in really high places. I really appreciate you. So before you go, would you mind just telling me, what do you weigh? That's the hardest question you've asked me so far. (laughs) You know, one of the things that this work has made me do is turn inwards a lot and think about the things that are really important. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking a lot about how, particularly in the media, it's not a meritocracy. You know, women, once they have babies, get put on the mummy track and so forth. So I really wish, wish, you know, that I had in my life not worked as hard and done more beautiful things. And so if I think about what I weigh, the things I put weight on are 
having people around me who love me and cooking for friends and spending time just doing things like being outside. We've got such beautiful parrots and kangaroos and things in Canberra and I'm teaching my kids, you know, to look at all the native orchids and things like that and pay attention to the here and now because I've spent a lot of my life kind of trying to please other people Mm. and I'm trying to say no more and take it back and not take it back to do radical exciting things like travel the world and go to rock concerts take it back to just you know take it there and read it yeah and read a Caitlin Moran book and like go outside and talk to my chickens and collect their eggs and grow some zucchinis you know like Try to be much quieter and much more in the moment. I'm not very good at it, Jimmy Lover. I'm trying. And, you know, my marriage broke up through the course of writing this book. It was very damaging, all the cyber hate and all the stuff that came with it. And I'm now in the most beautiful relationship with the most kind, caring, loving man. And I'm trying to really nurture that and pay attention to that and put my weight there. Well, thank you for saying yes to this uh, interview. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to uh, working with you in the future and helping you amplify your important work. Oh, Jamila, thank you for asking me. I got that little squee when I got your message. I was delighted because I've followed you for years. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Lots of love. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil is produced and researched by myself, Jamila Jamil, Erin Finnegan, and Kimmy Gregory. It is edited by Andrew Carson, and the beautiful music you are hearing now is made by my boyfriend, James Blake. If you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It's a great way to show your support. We also have a bonus series exclusively on Stitcher Premium called Ask Jamila Anything. Check it out. You can get a free month of Stitcher Premium by going to stitcher.com forward slash premium and using the promo code iWeigh. Lastly, over at iWeigh, we would love to hear from you and share what you weigh at the end of this podcast. You can leave us a voicemail at 1-818-660-5543 or email us what you weigh at iWeighPodcast at gmail.com. And now we would love to pass the mic to one of our fabulous listeners. Someone wrote in saying, I weigh my two brothers, who are the best people I know. I weigh a man who loves me very much and who I love too, no matter how much my brain tries to sabotage that. I weigh the two films I made during a pandemic and the short story I wrote that got shortlisted nationally, which, like, not to brag, oh, do brag, and Ireland small and all, but that's pretty cool and I weigh a hell of a lot of resilience and bounce back. I love that. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30.